Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's get to it. Glad to have you joining me one more time as we span the globe looking for common sense in uncommon times. It's kind of always been my mantra since I started in radio in 19, never mind what year it was, it was a long time ago. But that's really what it is uh, for me, it boils down to is, you know, there's so much that goes on in the world that makes zero sense to me. And I wonder how the F did we get this far as a species, I'm here to tell you. But be forewarned up front, let me just give you a little disclaimer. Uh, For some reason... Well, I know what the reason is. Let's skip that part. I know what the reason is. We went to Europe recently, my highly significant other and I, and uh, on the way there, uh, my ear popped. You know, I'm in mid-flight. We're probably four and a half hours into a, at that point, seven-hour flight from Chicago to Amsterdam with a nice tailwind pushing us right along, and my ear hasn't really recovered yet. Uh, there's been some ups and downs here and there, but sometimes all I can hear is myself in my head and nobody wants to hear my, me in their head, much less myself. So I'm really having to monitor my monitor, meaning that I really can't kind of hear myself. So in radio, we usually wear headsets or earbuds and I've always used it in just one ear because I want to hear what was going on in the studio, what have you. That's a, just a habit I have. So I have an earbud in my right ear, which I can hear a little bit. Uh, feedback from my recording, but in the left ear, what, what's going on over there? So I went back and forth and up and down. I'm trying to pop the ear, laying on my side, got a little vertigo going on, which is always a good thing. And I'm not talking about the Hitchcock movie either. So if you ever had vertigo, you know, it's not something you want to spend a lot of time in, just kind of strange. So uh, I'm working through it, but it's just one of those weird little things that, you know, at, at this point in my life, I think, is there anything else I can come up with here? These little nagging kind of uh, hanging chads uh, that get stuck to me. You know, I'm just, I think, finally coming out of Carpal Tunnel, which for a guy who's written three books and wrote seven books for other people, I can't imagine how that happened. Um, but I think that's kind of starting to ease itself. And I went to a chiropractor yesterday. It was my second time I've been to a chiropractor in my life. She's fantastic. And she's explaining all this stuff with my spinal cord and everything. And I got a neck block I got to put on and lay down and you know crack my neck a little bit more. But I'm starting to see maintenance much different than I ever did when I was younger. You know, I used to be Superman. Now I'm just Joe shit, the rag man, it seems like. Uh, Matter of fact, yesterday I was dropping some things off at Goodwill right near where I live. And there is a uh, Anytime Fitness Center, which is usually where I go. And I've been working out pretty consistently since I was like 14. Ever since Pumping Iron came out, I thought that would be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Never quite got that size. But I've been working out for... A majority of my life. And so the, I've taken a month off, which is unusual for me. On one hand, it's uh, a change in uh, plans, which is a little disruptive to my schedule during the day. You know, I, I have my set schedule, how things are going to go. I get up really early like I did today and I do this work and then I go to the gym and I come back and I work and I do this. So when I take that piece out, it kind of sets the rest of the day off a little bit. So I'm going to the Goodwill and I'm dropping off a few things and there's this guy walking the other way who is a member of the gym. And I've never said a word to this guy in the three years I've been going there. And he looks at me and he goes, ah, didn't recognize you without weights in your hand. He keeps walking along. <laughs> okay. 
So I'm hopefully going to get back in there soon. But the concept of, of uh, doing a bench press with a couple hundred pounds while I have vertigo, I don't know if that's a good idea. So we'll see where it all goes. Second thing is thank you so much for all the response from last week's podcast about the trip to Europe um, and, and the effect it really had on me uh, as someone who has never been there and the awareness of World War II and the remnants of that that is seemingly everywhere, you know, mostly through Germany and into France. Uh, we started the trip in Amsterdam and kind of went down the Viking River cruise. And again, serious plug for these folks. If you ever get the chance, I know there's a couple of people that uh, are connected to me on Facebook. I see they're out on a trip in France at this point and Spain and Italy. So good for you. But it was just incredible uh, winding through this ancient river system and, and thinking about through the centuries, the different peoples that, that lived there and inhabited the area and the, the peacetime and the wartime and all that went into that. And so a uh, great response for that. And I, I sure appreciate all the, the text messages and the Facebook messages and et cetera, et cetera, and of course, et cetera. And I've been working to get Angie Lorimer on. And Angie was our tour guide when we went in France to this, um, this, this area that had a World War II museum that was in somebody's house at one point. It's not a house anymore, but it's in a neighborhood. And the, uh, I was so overwhelmed at what she had to offer as far as the history of the area that I had zero knowledge of. Now, look, you know, I'm fairly well read in history and, you know, you read about World War II and you watch all this stuff on television. I'd never heard about some of the things that she talked about and they were very, very important. And so we missed each other last week. We're hoping in the next couple of days to get together, which would be the next podcast. And I know we're getting a little bit away from the trip, but I still think what she has to say and offer us is so very, very important. So there's no time frame for that or no time limit on that. Uh, so when she's ready, um, we're going to connect and have, you know, have that done. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Um, so what else is going on? Baseball's back. How good is that? Now, look, even if you're not a sports fan or a baseball fan, something magical happens, at least for me, when that time comes. Because it, it's like the, the renewal of spring and summer and all the, the warmth that follows. And, you know, and the whole concept of the game, you know, the Field of Dreams movie, one of my favorites. And the whole team concept that everybody has a position to play. And that you you know you go through this long grueling season with one outcome at the end is obviously to win the games, but there's something magical that happens within that even if you don't win. Now that, you know you get down to two teams at the end of the, the World Series, but the ups and downs of the season and all that p- these guys go through, uh, it's a it's a grueling sport. And so I tie that right back into now while I'm thrilled that uh, the season has started, and I'm a Cubs fan here in Chicago and. I live with a Sox fan, so it's kind of like a tug of war. But uh, I've been working on this book that focuses on the life of the great cub catcher, Randy Hunley, who caught from 65, played from 1965 to 77, 14 seasons. And I believe 12 of those years were with the Cubs. And the the, the big years, of course, 1968, 1969, 1970. And 69 team are the most, you know, famous second place team in the history of baseball. They came up short, the Miracle Mets win and go all the way. And so that's like the focal point of so much of what happened in Chicago for decades until the 2016 Chicago Cubs won the World Series. So I'm working on this book for months with Randy. And it's a really um, uh, interesting outing for me. 
Uh, one is I didn't think I would write a, a book for this guy ever. You know, we've been friends for decades. And it wasn't until, and we talked about it here and there a little bit, but nothing like, hey, let's start now. Uh, I was hoping he wouldn't wait till he's 80 years old to want to do this. But um, uh, nonetheless, uh, it's just been diving into those years, not just with the Cubs teams and the players of that, that era, but what was going on in the world back then is something that I think reminds me a little bit of what Angie talked about is that we, you know, we forget our history. And so while there's a lot going on in the world now that's just absolute dog shit, in my opinion, there's always been stuff going on in the world. I'm writing from 63 to 68, JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., and RFK assassinated within that five-year time span. You want to talk about a, a, a group of people that have PTSD. I mean, come on. So you got that going on. You got the civil rights going on. You got Vietnam going on. So all this was encapsulated in that that decade, basically. Uh, of course, Vietnam didn't end until 1975 officially. And just this past week was the 50th anniversary of the ending of, of that. And the Vietnam veterans were um, celebrated uh, last week. Uh, my cousin Rich the Sarge, one of those guys, two tours in Vietnam. Big Ron Albee, a guy that was a, a security uh, guy at Schur's High School where I went to, was also over there. John B. Andrus Jr., 101st Airborne. So, um, you know, all that was encapsulated in that time. And so writing about the baseball part of the book, obviously, is the meat of the thing. But you, you got to look at it in the context, at least I think so, of when these guys were playing and other things that were going on that were major distractions. I mean, how do you, you know, I even wrote about this with Randy. You know, he, he's sitting there talking about how um, how he felt when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and the whole concept, all the civil rights, you know, going on in the, in the world at that time, mostly in our country, but at least in the world awareness. And... He was born and raised in Martinsville, Virginia, which was part of the Confederacy back in the day, Civil War. And yet he, through his baseball experience, played ball with uh, teammates of color and could not understand the whole racist prejudice thing. You know, it was just this very deep-rooted thing. So on one hand, you have him growing up in the Confederate state. And on the other hand, he couldn't understand how the heck they ever got to that point. So pretty insightful stuff from this guy. And... Um, it just adds much more to, I think, much more to his story because of the context of everything that's around it. So here we are today in the 21st century, and you can point to things going on in the world and in our own country here that are just a dog shit show. And yet baseball, you know, so needed. It is this leveling force. He talked about playing at Wrigley Field during the years of Vietnam was going 67, 68, 69, 70. And that you could just see that people needed to find one place to come to to sit and and roll their sleeves up in the summer sun a little bit and uh, and have a Coca Cola, which only cost you about fifty cents back then. Box seats were three dollars and fifty cents. No wonder these guys didn't make any money. And but he, they needed that respite from all that's going on, the headlines. And no different now. You know, baseball has started again. I, and I, the people that I know that that are aficionados of the game. We all had this, took this deep breath. It's like, oh, thank you. Here we go again. There's something that isn't about the worst and lowest of human behavior. And I need that, you know, and I'm, I'm convinced that we all need that somewhere at some point. I, I just did a podcast uh, this past week. I produced podcasts for various businesses, companies, et cetera, and producing one for um, Networld Publishing. And Networld Publishing uh, is a, a, a publishing company 
go figure, that uh, has CEOs and those of name and note, and they publish their books and they'll tell their stories. And so they're doing a podcast now with Melissa G. Wilson and Billy Dexter. And so I produced that program for them. And at one point, uh, they pulled me into the conversation, asked me a question about you know the importance of, uh, of focus, basically, in life and how important that was. And I related to them a story that when I first started at Oprah Radio in, in 2006, I was given a BlackBerry. And if you've ever had one of these things, you know, they had like a little, uh, little device that hangs on your hip, little keyboard on there. And it was to me like it was a magical thing. I'd never had anything like that. I didn't even hardly have a cell phone back then. But uh, I was given this BlackBerry as one of the executive producers of the radio end of things. So I had this thing on my hip. And as soon as I turned it on, it buzzed all freaking day and all night. Because I didn't understand how to use it. And so literally every email that was bouncing around Harpo from Miss Winfrey down to the guy who put the food out at night for the crew when they stayed late to tape shows, everything went through that BlackBerry. It was buzzing, 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 buzzing. So after about two days of this, I finally called the IT guy and said, listen, I, what's, what's the deal? This is not going to work for me. He goes, oh, you just press this button over here. And you only get your messages or the ones that come from your team. All the rest goes somewhere else. I'm like, really? It's that easy. You just click that button. And next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. And I only get the things that are meant for me. And so I shared that story on the podcast. And that to me is what the power of focus is all about, what it can do for you. And, and, and the metaphor for me is that we all need to find that switch because so much of what's going on in the world has zero to do with us. Zero. How much do you need to know? I mean, unsocial media has thrown us all into a giant commode of sorts, all swirling the bowl. And at some point the flush is coming. And you got to, at least for me, I have to step back from that stuff. When I was on the trip, I didn't post on Facebook or connect with anybody really like just 10 days away from this stuff is important because it becomes conditioning. No different than when I go to the gym at a certain point, I get conditioned to that. I get to jump back to my kinesiology degree and talk about SAID, which is the most important tenet of kinesiology, which is specific adaptation to impose demands. In kinesiology, that's the study of human movement. So I did my thesis on the squat movement. You'd put a bar on your shoulders and you put X amount of weight and then you go down and up and every muscle that it takes to pull that off is what I wrote about and how all those work together in synergy to make it work. And so it's no different as I've learned over time that that SAID subject and idea plays out in every part of our life. We become adapted to the demand placed on us. Who decides what the demand is? You do and I do. So those 10 days off of any kind of social, unsocial media, connecting with people outside of texting my kids saying, look at this river, was like how it used to be in my brain before I sat there and worried about shit that is none of my business. And because it's we're so infiltrated with information that we can't possibly do a thing about, I actually have a story here to illustrate karma, really. But one of these stories like, do I need to know this? Would I have ever known this 25, 30 years ago? I guess, I suppose if I caught it on the news, maybe. But my point in saying this is, we all need to find that switch. Because if you don't, you become that which you allow. And it's not good. And that's what stress is. And stress is like the number one killer, I think, on so many levels. And not physically die of stress. 
as the actual cause of death, but I can tell you that it diminishes the life experience. So all this stuff coming our way, uh, we have to find ways to sort it out and, and divert it a little bit. The interesting thing about that BlackBerry is that when I finally left Harpo, uh, four and a half, five years later, I turned the BlackBerry in. My hip had got my right hip had gotten so used to that vibration, I literally had phantom vibrations for about two weeks. My body had adapted to this vibrating thing. It'd be just like, because the first few times it happened, it's like, well, what the hell is that? Well, after a while, you just adapt to that. You don't even know it's happening. You're so used to it. And then after I turned it in, it's still doing it. That told me a lot. Think about the information that comes to us on a daily, if not moment by moment basis, that really has nothing to do with us. And yet we ingest it anyway. And we become part of it. Listen, there's been another school shooting this past week. We are, in my opinion, and my observation, and my experience, past the point of anything being done about that. Those days are long gone. You know, the Pandora's box is open. It's not going to be closed. And you can find all the different reasons why that is, and you can all argue about them, but it won't change a thing. And so while until we get to the point where, like in Germany, where I think 140 people die a year from gun violence, that happens in a month in Chicago. And so we're not that type of society. We're a society that we want these firearms among all of us. And it's kind of like the wild, wild west again, right? So I keep in mind that there have been atrocities committed against young people and children forever. Go read history. I once came up with a list of all the mass shootings from like 1910, long before all of this stuff happened with assault rifles. And it was there too. That's not to say it's right. It's just to say that we've allowed this over time. It's a specific adaptation to impose demands. This is the demand. We've adapted to it. It doesn't mean it's good at all. It's shameful, in my opinion. It's also shameful that we can't say, well, let's just figure this out. Listen, I'm a fo- I got a FOID card. I own firearms, but I'm an idiot. And I'm thinking if you're outlawing machine guns, what would be the problem of assault rifles? Does that diminish your penis size or something? I don't get it. So in all of that, finding ways to not let this stuff swallow you whole, especially when there's nothing to push back against. When I see this, you know, it's a matter of time until there's another shooting. It'll be the same thing, thoughts and prayers. I think we've run out of those a long time ago. And there's zero you and I can do about it. I mean, there literally is. And that's the worst part is to have information being pushed upon when there's no recourse. And so these phantom vibrations of these, for lack of a better term, of these massacres that take place against young people, defenseless children, uh, it, it leaves me speechless because there's nothing to be done here. You could melt them all down. That'd be a start. It's not going to happen. So here we are. And it's why I always say we become what we allow. And we've allowed this for so long. We've become this. So I can tell the litmus test on unsocial media is there used to be when there was a shooting, there was an uproar on Facebook and people would be posting about it and what needs to be done. And the gun people would say this and the anti-gun people would say this and the parents would say this and, and it would just go on and on. Now, nothing. The shooting happened last week. There's a couple crosses there for Nashville. That's it. We've accepted this. And that is a huge lesson in life for better and for worse. We become what we allow. And so in all of that, I'm trying to, you know, bring April in with a high note. And sometimes it's difficult because it's hard to find 
you know, the common sense in this uncommon acts that are unfortunately becoming more and more common. That's my prediction. More of the same, because we've done nothing to change it. And in all of that, I'm trying to move in a direction, especially in this show, to remind us that the headlines shouldn't determine your lifelines. That walking around afraid, you know, I, I remember when there were Richard Speck killed eight nurses in Chicago in 1968 or 67, somewhere in there. And my mom locked the door every night. He was caught. She wasn't a nurse. It happened, but it was all over the news. It was a big deal as it should have been. And it caused fear. It caused a fear response in her. Never opened her doors again after that. So I look at these things that go on in the world. And then I pull back for them and say, how do I respond to it? What is, what is my response? Which is different than a reaction. And just in case you're wondering, a reaction is something that is automatic. A response is something that takes time. It is a, a staggered response. It's not automatic. It's like when you go to the doctor and they check your reflexes, bink, up your leg goes. That's a reaction. When you take three or four breaths before making a comment or deciding something in your life, that's a response. And there's far more power in response now, there's a place for reaction, of course, but it shouldn't be everywhere and all the time. This is starting to sound like a little bit of a ramble and rant to me, so I'm going to switch gears here. Uh, but that's the drift of it, is that as I see more and more coming back out of my hiatus from social media and doing my second show since the cruise, uh, it's all waiting for you out there. Find a way to turn some of it off. You'll feel better in the long run. Today is also April Fool's Day. Do you know how April Fool's Day, you know what the origin of April Fool's Day is? Nobody does. This is another one of those, how did we get here? So they speculate, whoever they are, I'm doing quote figures. You wish you could see them. They look really good. Look at this. Historians speculate that April Fool's Day dates back to 1582. About the same uh, time some of those cathedrals in France that I saw were being built. Uh, France switched from the Julian calendar, which is like Julian Fry's. Julian salad? No. Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar as called for by the Council of Trent in 1563. I had a high school teacher named Dick Trent. I wonder if he was, had anything to do with that. Anyway, in the Julian calendar, as in the Hindu calendar, the new year began with the spring equinox around April 1st. Unlike today, people were slow to get the news or even failed to recognize that the start of the new year had moved from January 1st and continued to celebrate it during the last week of March through April 1st. They became the butt of jokes and hoaxes that were called April Fools. So you can imagine back then if we would have had Facebook, you know, everybody would have known about it. There'd be no April Fool's Day. Uh, they became butt of jokes. Uh, these pranks included having paper fish placed on their backs. I wouldn't sit still to have someone put a paper fish on my back. But anyway... They were called April fish because they were so easily caught and gullible. Some of that hasn't changed, kids. I don't think some of that's changed. In modern times, people have gone to great lengths to create elaborate April Fool's Day hoaxes. Newspapers, uh, radio, TV stations, websites have participated in this tradition of reporting outrageous fictional claims that have fooled their audiences. In 1957, the BBC, which by the way, short digression here, when we were on the cruise ship, the BBC was the only channel we could actually get, which we didn't watch much TV because that's not why we're there. You want to float down the room and watch television? I don't think so. But BBC, obviously because of our location there at the time, was really the only outlet to the world when it came to news. And to see the world through the BBC eyes, which is different than CNN, Fox, or MSNBC, or anybody else, was refreshing. It's similar setup, 
but um, more of a worldview, a European view, and how we're looking at us across the pond as opposed to us gazing into our navels all the time and making it all about us here on these various channels. It was really interesting to, to spend some time watching. Anyway, back in 1957, the BBC reported that Swiss farmers were experiencing a record spaghetti crop, and they showed footage of people harvesting noodles from trees. People believed it. In 1985, Sports Illustrated writer George Plimpton, who is a fantastic writer, by the way. If you're a sports fan, you got to read his book, Paper Lion. Paper Lion was George Plimpton, who had no business putting on a football helmet or shoulder pads, his year uh, working with the Detroit Lions and getting the snot knocked out of him. So it's a pretty good book. George Plimpton tricked many readers when he ran a made-up article about a rookie pitcher named Sid Finch who supposedly could throw a fastball over 168 miles an hour. This is one of my favorites. There's a couple more here, but this is one of my favorites. In 1992, NPR, National Public Radio, ran a spot with former President Richard Nixon saying he was running for president again. 1992. It was only an actor, not Nixon, and the segment was all an April Fool's Day prank that caught the country by surprise. People were up in arms. I vaguely remember this that Richard Nixon was going to run for office, which he couldn't, but he was going to run for president again. The disgraced Nick, I am not a crook. And he left office. Uh, he was going to run for president again, and, and NPR did that, which is kind of, for the dry cracker kind of taste of NPR, that was pretty good. And in 1996, the uh, fast food restaurant chain Taco Bell duped people when it announced it agreed to purchase Philadelphia's Liberty Bell and intended to rename it the Taco Liberty Bell. In 1998, after Burger King advertised a left-handed Whopper, scores of clueless customers requested a fake sandwich. They'd walk up or go to the drive-thru of Burger King and say, I want a left-handed Whopper. Uh-huh. And finally, Google notoriously hosts the annual April Fool's Day prank that has included everything from telepathic searches to the ability to play Pac-Man on Google Maps. None of that works. And, of course, you could always do uh, covering the toilet with plastic wrap. You can't see it. Go in there to do a little business. Next thing you know, you're sitting in your business. And, uh, or swapping the contents of the sugar and salt containers, which is always good. Or just sunscrewing the top of the pepper, you know, watching the guy at the next table do that. Uh-huh. Anyway, listen, short musical interlude. And I, I'm starting to add some of this to the show. I did a, uh, a music show in Washington, D.C. for a year called The Dow Music. I miss doing that. And I do not have a license to air music per se. However, I have friends who are musicians that I know won't sue me. And I think you'd enjoy their music. And Heidi Newfield is one of those. And business is good. If I had a dollar for 
never broke my heart I've been drinking fine wine and eating caviar If trouble was money I'd have more money than any man she That's right I'm hoping for business in your neighborhood The blues is my business and business is good She is uh, the girl's on fire. So if you enjoy that kind of music, she's all over the map. Uh, you can find her stuff at HeidiNewfield.com. Uh, her tour dates, all her recordings. Uh, she's an incredible talent. Uh, and that's Delbert McClinton, the legendary Delbert McClinton, uh, helping her out on that song. Blues is my business and business is good. Should have heard me singing. Maybe not. Major shout out to uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes last night. I got a, a little bit of the, the game in uh, towards the end. I actually watched the recap this morning uh, where they beat the uh, South Carolina uh, Gamecocks 77-73. And Caitlin Clark, you talk about another girl on fire, the AP uh, player of the year. I don't even know what to say about her. She knocked 41 in last night. And all I kept thinking about was when I was growing up, there were two sisters – Carolyn and Heidi, 
who were fantastic athletes, and yet there was no place for them to really play. Uh, we would play softball at the, uh, the grammar school that I went to, and inevitably, one of them would get chosen for the team. And these two, I'm telling you, were better than half the guys that were on the team. And it wasn't until 1972 that Title IX came along and allowed for them and, and, and other ladies like them to, to get involved and not be discriminated against. And I can remember in high school uh, going to ladies' basketball games uh, here in Chicago and how exciting those were. And to see how far it's come in really somewhat relatively short amount of time is just fascinating. I would, I'd rather watch that than the NBA any day of the week. First of all, I think that they're superior athletes, incredibly amazing athletes at that level. I don't know what the future lies for Ms. Clark, but it's big. And the effect of young women watching someone like Caitlin Clark and all the ladies that play basketball in college and in high school, uh, the effect of that, that I could do that too, that is a major thing. You know, for young men growing up, we had our heroes, and now you have these heroes for the young ladies. And I just think that that is... I get so excited. I was I watched the highlights twice this morning. It was that good. I'm like, look at this. So congrats to Iowa. They move forward. We'll see where all this goes. Also, just a, a quick thought. Um, where my kids went to school in the bustling metropolis of Rapid River, Michigan, which is a small hamlet in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, and uh, they had a player there named Cashy Rushford who scored 1,000 points in her high school career. Her name's up on the wall. Is that not the coolest thing? I think that it is. And finally, to wrap this up today, I mentioned earlier about this whole uh, common sense for uncommon times and karma kickbacks and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we've become a country in so many different ways that is even more used to cheating and allowing for this stuff. And I'm always thinking to myself, a lot of the reasons I don't get bent out of shape when I read some of this stuff or hear it, because I know karmically you've already kicked your own ass. The minute you put bullshit in into uh, play, the bullshit's coming around. What is it? What goes around comes around. Specific adaptation to impose demands. Same deal. So last year, I heard this story of these two guys who were, uh, they're fishermen, and they decided that they were going to, um, let me put it this way, they're competing at the Lake Erie Walleye Tournament, and this was in 2022. The pair were initially declared the winners, but controversy soon erupted. The director of the tournament noticed that Runyon and Kaminsky's walleyes, these are the two guys that are being uh, charged with this crime, weighed more than they looked. And so they slice open the fish and 10 weights were located inside the walleyes, eight weighing 12 ounces and two weighing eight ounces, along with several more walleye fillets they shoved in the fish so they could win the fishing tournament. The incident was caught on video and shared across social media where I came across it. And I'm telling you what, these two guys are standing up at the front. They're weighing the fish. And all of a sudden, they're, somebody's like, wait a minute, that ain't right. And so they cut open the fish. And they find all this stuff. I thought they were going to hang him right there. You don't want to piss off the fishermen. I mean, it's a serious sport at this point. The tournament hosted fishermen from several surrounding states that competed to see which team could catch five of the heaviest walleye in Lake Erie. Prosecutor's office noted, if Runyon and Kaminsky had won this tournament, uh, they would have received a total prize of $28,760. Instead, they're busted. They initially plead not guilty on tape, did it, and everybody knows they did it, and they know they did it. So right when it came down to it, uh, just before they were in court, um, or the trial was to start, they instead of decide guilty. 
Yeah, we did it. So all almost a year goes by. Nope, nope, nope. Caught on tape. They're ready to hang these guys by their Buster Browns, and then they've decided to uh, to plead guilty. Um, they each admitted to charges of cheating, which is a fifth degree felony. Did you know that cheating is a fifth degree felony? Unlawful ownership of wild animals. Not sure how that fits, unless they went and got these walleye fillets from somewhere else and shoved them down. That's a fourth degree misdemeanor. And as part of the deal, prosecutors agreed to dismiss additional felony charges of attempted grand theft and possessing criminal tools just to win a fishing tournament. Sentencing is set for May 11th, but while Runyon and Kaminsky could, I'm telling you, I just keep hearing this law firm commercial in my head. Call us, Runyon and Kaminsky. If you've got a fishing problem, we'll take care of it. They could each technically face up to a year in prison. Prosecutors agreed to instead recommend six months probation. As part of the agreement, the two forfeited their fishing licenses for three years, as if anybody's going to let them back in ever again, and surrendered Kaminsky's boat, which is worth a hundred grand. So let me set the scene here one more time as we get ready to wrap up this edition of the Life 2.0 podcast, which is all about up in the life game and being aware and figuring out finding common sense in uncommon times, going up the down staircase, in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. The obvious buried in the absurd case is they stuffed weights and other fish parts to win a fishing tournament for 28 grand. They end up with probation never be allowed another fishing tournament, and the guy loses a $100,000 fishing boat. Bam! There's your karmic kickback of the day. Until next time, be well, safe travels. I appreciate you listening. Keep the faith.